one of my favorite lines was it's a football one but you know when you when you score a touchdown act like you've been there before mm-hmm. instead of acting like you've just won the super bowl by yourself of course i think it's pretty easy to say that the advent of espn and all kinds of of television they should the highlights they show are also showing kids how they're supposed to act when they do something well and so it's it's pretty hard to overcome but that was important to me in our in our program that we never looked uh, looked that way i think it's i think it was super important to uh, no matter who you beat where you beat them or who you lost to when that happened to to get in that handshake line and and, and look them in the eye and shake their hands and tell them congratulations or nice game mm-hmm. whatever the case may be Welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. I'm your host, Bailey Miles. The Building Excellence Podcast is all about sharing inspiring stories from some of the most successful athletes, coaches, business minds, and thought leaders to help you build excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. We hope this show provides you with tremendous value. And if you find the show impactful, please share with a friend and on social media, as well as subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. Thanks, now let's get to the show and start building excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. Today we have a really special guest. It's one that I've admired from afar as a coach. It is Coach Rick Bird, who is the former Belmont University men's basketball head coach. During his time coaching, he won over 805 games as a head coach, which ranks 12th all-time in NCAA Division I basketball. In 2021, he was inducted into the National Collegiate Basketball Hall of Fame and has been the recipient of the prestigious John R. Wooden Legends of Coaching Award, as well as many other highly regarded awards. Under his leadership, Coach Bird led Belmont to eight NCAA tournaments, 17 conference championships, and consistently had victories over teams like North Carolina, UCLA, Cincinnati, Stanford, and many more in his final 14 seasons. Just as impressive as Belmont posted a team GPA of 3.0 or higher for 20 consecutive seasons, and every player that completed eligibility earned their degree. On the show, Coach Bird shares about growing up in Knoxville, Tennessee, playing college basketball, getting into coaching, treating people with respect, building a team, leadership, sustaining excellence, and much more. It's going to be a great show, so I hope you take a lot of notes and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. Today I have a special guest, Coach Rick Bird with me. Rick, thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks for asking. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, if you wouldn't mind, kind of give us some background on yourself and, and what life was like growing up for you. Well, I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, home of the University of Tennessee. And my father was a sports writer for the morning paper. And uh, so I sort of naturally um, liked sports from as early as I can remember. Um, his um, his beat as they call it in that business i guess was one of them was the tennessee basketball and uh when i was oh i don't know nine or ten uh they hired ray mears to come to to tennessee and he he really turned that program around ended up with the king grunfeld era um but um anyway i got to go to practices, I sold programs before the game, and and when the buzzer went off, then that means I could quit selling programs, and I would literally go sit at his feet, my dad's feet, 
underneath the press table. In those days, they literally were just tables. And probably 10 feet to my right was the Tennessee coaching staff. And on the other end might be Adolph Rupp or uh, <laughs> some of the greats of those days. So pretty hard for a kid not to get pretty excited about uh, basketball and, and maybe doing that under those circumstances. Oh yeah. That's a great experience in itself. Just being able to, to be that close to some of the coaches and players and uh, just have that natural curiosity wanting to play was basketball something your dad had also played and there was a common love or. Well, he, no, I don't, I mean, he was an athlete. I don't think he played, he played high school baseball for sure. Mm-hmm. I don't think he was on the basketball team, but he loved it and understood mm-hmm. it knew it and ended up being on the, U.S. Basketball Writers Association picking the All-American teams and that sort of thing and ended up being sports writer in the, in the state of Tennessee honor for at least five years during his career. Uh, so he was a good writer. It was a different era. Uh, they weren't they weren't looking for dirt and, and as critical as they can be today. Uh, and so he had a good relationship with Coach Mears. We, our families were friends. Uh, but he loved the game, and and uh, and he, he taught me a lot because he he thought it was a game, and uh, uh, he and it's one of the reasons he didn't want to get critical in his journalism um, about about how players played or coaches coached. He just wanted to report the game uh, and thought it was supposed to be just that. So I've tried to keep that in mind my whole life, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great perspective. You know, as you look back at your parents, obviously you had some commonalities on, on the love for Tennessee basketball, but was there anything that you look back and remember from them, some of the qualities and lessons that you really look back and appreciate? Oh, uh, <laughs> almost all of them, really. <laughs> I mean, they just, uh, my dad had tremendous humility. He was easily recognizable in Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, and, but he had no ego about any of that. Um, and I think he was soft-spoken, uh, quiet, honest, decent, lots of integrity. Uh, my mom was a nurse. Uh, both of them worked hard. I think I could see that from the beginning. Uh, when I look back at the, the little bitty houses I grew up in and see where they started and and the opportunities they gave me uh, as I grew older and was getting ready to college, my dad said it didn't matter. He'd send me wherever I wanted to go to school. I didn't get a scholarship. Uh, that's, you know, that's the way he was. Um, so, and he was, he was at all my games and hmm. probably never said a word to anybody. You know, he was not a, one of those dads at all. And uh, in fact, if I started whining about something the coach did in the car afterwards, he'd let me know pretty quickly <laughs> that wasn't the right thing to do. Okay. Yeah. Well, obviously those are some great qualities that you got a chance to learn from your parents growing up. And I'm sure we'll circle back to a lot of those qualities because uh, a lot of those qualities to me are obviously not just great qualities in a person, but also in a team and a culture and, and establishing something that's kind of greater than yourself. So Early on, did you know that you wanted to play college athletics, specifically basketball? And what did that look like um, when you kind of decided you wanted to play? I was I was really a good basketball player when I was eight or nine. Okay, I mean I was 
at the top of my age group, I can tell you, I could. <laughs> Tennessee used to do fancy ball handling drills in their warmups. I don't know if anybody listening to this has any idea what I'm talking about, but they were, you know, they would do it. They had a guy on a unicycle. Uh, they they did all kinds of stuff, and so uh, I learned how to dribble the ball between my legs, behind my back, all kinds of tricks of the trade. Uh, and I was I was pretty good when I was eight or nine or ten or eleven. I probably um, I was always small, but but basketball was easily my greatest love as a sport. Played little league baseball growing up, liked it. Didn't didn't care much for getting tackled in football, so I stayed away from that. Um, <laughs> And, and grew into loving the game of golf and played it from as a, you know, um, a high schooler and, and before, but played high school golf and that sort of thing. Uh, so anyway, uh, I just, uh, basketball was definitely my favorite sport and, and my best. Uh, but I, I fell in the category a lot of guys as players did. I was, uh, I thought I was good enough to play uh, at a higher level than I was good enough to play at. And I waited a long time and ended up taking a scholarship to, to Central Florida Community College in Ocala, Florida, and went down there and played a year. Made lifelong friends with the assistant coach, Mike McGinnis, whose son ended up coming to play for me uh, at Belmont uh, and, uh, and, and had a learning experience. I, I, I simply, if I was good enough, I wasn't good enough for the style they played. This was the old two guard offense, you know, I wasn't going to be posting anybody up or anything like that. I was a point guard at best. So, so I came back, went to, went to Tennessee as a quote unquote regular student for a couple of years. And then uh, freshman became eligible to play in college. This would be what 75 or, or something like that. Uh, and they, they ended up having a junior varsity team starting that. So they're, so their freshmen might be able to play some there. And then they asked me to come play as a walk-on and be their point guard. And probably the best thing that ever happened to me, it got me back in the game. Uh, I became a student assistant coach. Uh, and, and so, you know, I got back in the game where uh, I had a little something on my resume when it came time to look for jobs. Yeah. And what about going down to, to Florida coming out of high school, how did you wind up going down to Florida and not maybe staying close by or, or just ending up at the program that you ended up at? Well, I had, had met a coach, a man named Billy Henry, who had been, who was the head coach at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. My dad knew him, ended up going to his basketball camp one time when I was probably 14 years old, something like that, uh, and stayed in touch with him. Uh, he was an assistant for Tommy Bartlett at the University of Florida. And when nothing, nothing big happened for me, uh, he had a, they had a former player, Mike McGinnis, who I just mentioned, uh, was their first time assistant just right out of college. And so he called Mike and, and recommended me. And uh, Mike, Mike didn't hold that against him the rest of his life. But, uh, but that's how I ended up going down there to play. And, uh, you know, looking back, there's a lot of things I didn't know, didn't do very well. Uh, I didn't, I didn't work out and play and get ready for my freshman year of college. You know, I guess I thought I was good enough, but got down there and, and found out different. Uh, but it was, 
you know, it was such, it was, it was a great growing up experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, transitioning from high school into college is something that is a challenge for a lot of kids sometimes too, but was that maybe your first kind of a battle with um, something that didn't quite go the way you anticipated it to go and a little bit of adversity? Well, it certainly was the biggest one athletically that I can think of. Um, you know, I think the world's changed. I mean, there, there was not AAU basketball. We're, we're talking about I graduated high school in 1971. So, you know, there, were, there weren't summer teams. Our high school team played a little bit of summer league basketball. Um, you know, so, you know, and Central Florida didn't have a, pro, a strength and conditioning program where they'd reach out and say, here's what you need to start doing and that sort of thing. Kids don't go to, I don't think many kids uh, sign a scholarship in the spring and then show up in the fall and they haven't worked pretty hard during the summer prior to that. They just know better now. And uh, I, did, I didn't know better. Uh, uh, and uh, so, you know, that's a, that just, it was a, it was a learning experience. I didn't, uh, I made good friends. Uh, I loved Ocala, ended up playing on the golf to start, basically start coach McGinnis started the golf team and I ended up playing golf in the spring. And then it just decided, uh, that I probably wasn't going to play very much and decided just to stay home in Knoxville and go to UT. Mm -hmm. And if I heard correctly, did you also run track too or cross country? <laughs> uh, I, I, I did. I did run cross country because they just didn't have enough guys. So they told me to run cross country. You did and, it all. <laughs> so, I, you know, I was thinking funny that you mentioned that because I was thinking that day, I may be the last three sport athlete in the history of central Florida community college <laughs> that nobody knows about. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A real bad one in all three. Really. <laughs> okay. Well, you, you wind up going back to Tennessee did you know you wanted to coach at the time? You obviously got on as a walk-on. And so was that something that was on your radar is getting on, on the team, being able to learn from the, the coaches and then kind of advancing your career as you moved out of college? Yeah. As soon as I came back, I started working coach Mayer's basketball camps uh, as a counselor. And really that's probably where, uh, because A.W. Davis was going to be the JV coach of the team. He was on the staff. He'd been a great player at Tennessee. And I knew him. And so he asked me to play. Uh, and so, yeah, I didn't, I hadn't really thought about doing anything else. Uh, I don't know that I was as focused. Uh, I worked some basketball, I worked some other basketball camps. I went, uh, actually I went out to, uh, of all places, Washington state and worked two weeks for George Raveling's camps at, at, in Pullman. And then, uh, three of us did and then drove 24 hours straight to get to Los Angeles and work, worked coach Wooden's camp for a week mm. um, and got to meet him there. And uh, uh, so, uh, you know, I was, I was always pretty much locked in on <laughs> maybe, Hey Rick, this is the only thing you, you are capable of doing. So you better get serious about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, what made you go out to those camps in the summers and, and kind of get a chance to learn from some of those yeah. coaches that you just talked about? I think just uh, knowing that's what I wanted to do and that mm -hmm. I needed to do things like that. And I still, I know you had TJ Saint on mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and I heard some of that and, I, and he mentioned that I encouraged him to go work basketball camps for, at different places so he would meet different people and more people. And, uh, 
and and I, you know, I even felt like at the time that I needed to do that and make more connections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's you know that's a long way to go too. That's a lot of drive time Ooh. to go out to Washington and then go go out to L.A. But yeah, I'm sure that four days, four yeah. days worth. And then we thought, you know, we thought, here's how we, how smart we are from Knoxville. Uh, we we thought, well, we're on the West Coast. We can just we can just hop right down to L.A. <laughs> you know, and, and work another camp. Well, it literally was 24 hours straight driving and four hour shifts between three of us. Yeah. yeah. It's and not as good. Com- as- PM It's time to start the camp. <laughs> not as compact as the Southeast is. That's for sure. No, that's a great story though, because, you know, you talked about you, uh, TJ Saint as a guy that I met working camp up at Butler. And uh, that was something yeah. that I was doing. Because yeah. you get a chance to hear people's stories and you learn if you know what you want to do, um, there's got to be work involved. And, in, in, you know, I'm sure driving 24 hours going from Washington State to uh, Los Angeles is not, you know, necessarily a fun drive time. But also when you get there, too, you have to work camp and you're on your feet all day. Um, sure. And it's, a, it's not necessarily overnight, easy, easy work. Overnight camps. I mean, back yeah. then they were, they were all overnight camps. You know, by the time I got to Belmont, all we were doing were day camps and they were a lot easier than those where you had to worry. But then we did some team camps that were overnight, but for kids. So yeah, mm-hmm. that was full time the whole way through, but I met some great people. Uh, and, uh, it was, you know, it was, you know, Hey, we were just trying to get there. I'm telling you, I think a couple of times, one or two of us had had to quit after two hours and hand it over to somebody else. We were trying to stay awake uh-huh. and, get, and get to LA. Yeah. That's a great start. No sightseeing in San Francisco or anything, just straight down the direct shot. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great story. I love that story. Well, what about at Tennessee when you're getting a chance to be within the program now? Cause you said you grew up getting to kind of see it from afar. Now you're actually in the program. What are some of the lessons that you learned in your time as a walk on at Tennessee? Yeah. And what was good for me was that, that I played JV but I practiced with the varsity and, we're, and that, that was the Ernie Grunfeld Bernard King teams. Uh, so they were really good. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I was just practice fodder. And, uh, and so I would practice two hours JV and coach Mears had long practices and talking about things you learn or some things you learn, you're probably not going to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, uh, and so I'd practice basketball five hours a day. And, uh, and so certainly I saw all the things his teams were his practices and his whole approach was very organized. Um, uh, we had to wear coat and tie to pregame meals. Uh, a lot of stuff that wouldn't fly today. Uh, pregame meals were real early, and then they had like pudding and milkshakes at about five o'clock in the afternoon for before the games. And uh, um, but he just he was just on top of everything, and his staff was. And so I learned. I learned the importance of practice organization as much as anything. Uh, learned some of the things I liked about his coaching, some of the things that I would do differently. And I think anybody that's ever worked for me would say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the pudding and milkshakes probably wouldn't go down on some of the pregame meals today, would it? <laughs> so. <laughs> Needless to say, they didn't have a nutritionist. Did yeah. <laughs> yeah, obviously not. Well, you talked about your time at Tennessee, and then you get a chance to, to get into the coaching room. Where was your first coaching job, and how did you wind up getting an opportunity to coach? Well, it was, it was uh, interesting. I, I, I was hired as a graduate assistant at Tennessee after my 
first after the year that I played and and helped, and I was going to be the assistant coach for the uh, for the junior varsity team, and then continue to practice uh, practice with the varsity and just do whatever he needed me in the office. Well, there's a rule in NCAA that you had to be in your fifth year to to be a graduate assistant, and and I had. It had taken me four and a half years to graduate from college with transferring from the junior college and so on. And uh, the assistant AD walked in one day and said, you're, I mean, he, he had given me a check, you know, probably for $27 or something, whatever my monthly stipend was as a GA. And he came back in and took it away from me and said, you're, uh, we, we just found out you can't do it. And, uh, but in the meantime, Billy Henry, the man that I told you that had recommended me to Central Florida had uh, taken the job as AD and basketball and baseball coach at Maryville College, Division Three, right outside of Knoxville. And he asked me if I'd be his assistant. And, and I, had, I had to go to Coach Mears and say, can I possibly try to do both of these things? Because I didn't want to lose my Tennessee thing. Well, I, I lost it. And so I became his assistant. He was at Charleston Southern. No, he was at Baptist College, which is now Charleston Southern, hmm. uh, as the head coach and retired, quit, fired. I don't recall the story. Uh, and um, uh, and Maryville hired him, but he had committed to teach the fall semester or the quarter, whatever they were on. So I ran practices during the week. And he'd come in on the weekends and we'd have practice. And I coached one or two games as, as the head coach that year because he was stuck in Charleston. And, uh, and so, I, you know, I, it was great for me because I really did get – I mean, I, I'm sure I wasn't very good at what I was doing, but I was excited about it and enthusiastic about it. And uh, it, it made me kind of grow up as a coach quicker than I would have in – just following along, doing what the other guy wanted me to do. And that was, that was our only staff. And so uh, I was a assistant coach for $500 the first year. And then I was a full-time assistant the next year for $5,000. And when they hired me as a head coach, I made $8,000. So I was really moving up <laughs> financially. Uh-huh. Yeah, no. And, and I love that story. What are some lessons you look back in that first year of coaching that really stick out to you in terms of kind of shaping your coaching philosophy? You're asking me if I can remember 40 years ago. <laughs> stuff. Okay. Uh, I, I can remember that we were two and 13 my first year after 15 games. I can remember that pretty clearly. Mm. Trying to decide what else I could possibly do in this world. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, Maryville College had not been very good for a long time. And um, so we didn't have great players. Uh, I, you know, I remember working real hard. You, today, everybody's got a cell phone. Back then, I literally had to drive from my house 20 minutes to Maryville College in the evenings and get on the one long distance line that, they, that the school had uh, so that I could make recruiting calls. Uh, now, you know, how much harder is that than today's world? Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of things were way different then, uh, but I, it, was, it was the perfect route for me. And, uh, uh, you know, I learned, I started learning 
you're always learning how to handle players, what motivates them, what works for some guys, what doesn't work for others. Uh, I'm sure that my thought process was like a lot of young coaches that, that we're going to outwork everybody and that's going to make all the difference, right? We're going to work harder. We're going to play harder on defense, all the things that everybody thinks when they're kids and uh, just starting out. And uh, I don't know how quickly I found out, but, but it wasn't too long that, that these guys, these guys need to enjoy playing basketball at Maryville College or at Lincoln Memorial where I coached or at Belmont where I ended up. They, they need to, they need to enjoy it. And I don't need to, I don't need to be the toughest guy on the block. I don't, I don't want to make these practices tough for the sake of making them tough. And, um, and so I can that was, that was a gradual learning curve for me. Uh, but I think it's really where I ended up. And I, and I think, I think if you recruit the right kind of uh, young men that are sort of self-motivated, self-starters, and you don't have to worry about doing that every day they show up for practice or wonder if they want to play pickup on their own, uh, then you can coach that way with those kind of kids. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to skip over your time at Lincoln Memorial and getting to Belmont, but a lot of the stuff that you just talked about in there is, is really important. It's like, how do you develop buy-in? How do you identify uh, people that kind of fit within the character and the philosophy and the culture that you want to establish. And obviously you're learning that as a young coach and obviously that played a part when you're at Lincoln Memorial and obviously Belmont. So talk a little bit about your trajectory going from uh, Lincoln Memorial to Belmont. And then I'd love to dive into kind of some, some key things you've learned as a coach and, and building and developing a culture and, and some buy-in because that's really challenging to establish no matter what sport you're in or no matter what business you're in as well. And, it, and it's, it's the most important thing you can do as a coach outside of, of probably recruiting better players than the people you're playing against. Yeah. That's a good thing to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but once you've got them, then it's certainly uh, certainly getting everybody on the same page and understanding. And that, that, that I found out pretty early was done. A lot of that was done in the recruiting process. Um, I can remember when I was an assistant for three years after Maryville College, we ended up having a good second year, my second year. We were 15 and 11, um, most wins in 31 years at that school. Uh, and uh, that doesn't sound like a fantastic record, but it did to us then. And, uh, and so uh, I went to Tennessee Tech as an assistant uh, for Tom Deaton, who had been a Tennessee assistant. One of the guys I went out on that West Coast road trip with. Mm. Um, and... Uh, I can remember having a conversation with another coach and he was trying to be uh, constructively critical of me. And, uh, and I probably took it a little bit personal, but he said, Rick, you, you only like to recruit the guys that you like. Uh, and uh, I thought, I didn't think, I thought that was a real, uh, it wasn't even a backhanded compliment, it, but and I don't think he meant it in a mean way. Mm -hmm. But, but I thought about that years and years and years later, I thought about that comment and I think he was right. Uh, I, I did, I did want guys on my team that I liked, uh, that, that believed in the things I believe in, uh, about how you can succeed and that the, the whole team first concept, whatever you want to call all that culture is critical. And you, and you find that out in the recruiting process. 
And I also found out the longer that I, I was a head coach, that the more transparent, honest, upfront that you are with young men and their families, their moms and dads usually, uh, during that recruiting process, tell them exactly the way that it's gonna be, the things you believe in, things you don't believe in. Uh, and I, I became, when you're real young, you're, you're pretty afraid to do some of that stuff. As you coach longer, get a little bit of credibility perhaps, it, it, it became, I understood that it was actually a, a plus for us uh, because our retention rate at Belmont ended up to be pretty sky high compared to any other division one program. And it wasn't because um, I'm such a fun, easy coach to play for a great guy or, or our coaching staff, Belmont's a great school. A lot of things went into it, but it, it was their teammates. They didn't want to leave their teammates. They were their best friends. They really liked all the guys around them. And even though our math was the same as anybody else's math about playing time, uh, then they, they still didn't leave. And uh, so I think that ended up helping us on the floor. Uh, I mean, I just, it, it's, I don't know how it shows up on the scoreboard, but I don't think there's any question that that whole philosophy, it, it helped us get players helped us get players whose parents were involved, hmm. whose mom wanted to see them go to a place where their young man is going to be taken care of and around good people. And that helped us get better basketball players too. And it was uh, plus there's a lot of drama. There's a lot of issues sometimes in the locker room and on a team. And we escaped a lot of that. Mm -hmm. oh, and, and what you said right there is so important because it is, it is important to also speak up like you talked about. It was a little bit scary there when you maybe didn't feel like you had established yourself so much at the moment. But when you're able to communicate effectively and talk about the vision you have for where you're going, it, it creates a camaraderie in terms of helping people understand what that looks like. And so when you have those values that are um, being able to be relayed to a young man that's looking to come play for you, it obviously is going to connect. And when you have all different types of players, not just players, but like you said, your coaching staff, your trainers, your managers, everyone on the same page. It's not so much about, you know, who's getting the credit. You know, I'm sure there's still definitely egos to, to get involved with and, and working through that, but it's, it's more about the team. It's more about we other than just, just me. And that's a really challenging thing to do, especially in athletics and really in today's environment. And oh. When you got to Belmont, it wasn't necessarily like the program that you helped establish there. And so how important was that to kind of establish that type of environment first and foremost as you kind of grew the program? It, it was easily the, the most obvious thing that needed to be changed, in my opinion. And, and again, here's what I don't ever say. That, and I don't ever say that we we did it or do it the right way. OK, that's that's not up for me to decide. Hmm. Uh, it's, you know, that, that phrase is thrown about a lot. Uh, and sometimes it's thrown around by the person who's doing, who thinks they're doing it the right way, but that's pretty, that's pretty cocky if you ask me. And so I just, I thought number one, that we needed to start recruiting young men that fit, that would choose Belmont if they were just going to school there. Uh, now, you know, you can't, walk out on the sidewalk and, and grab a guy off and do that. But, but, there, but when you try to, when you try to bring somebody in and fit a round peg and square hole uh, and they're just not going to enjoy being at school, 
for whatever reasons, whether it's academic or social or uh, maybe playing style. There's a lot of, a lot of issues there, a lot of things to, to check off. And then they're going to be the ones that aren't happy. They're the ones who aren't going to, who are going to talk in the locker room and in the dorm rooms and everything, all the stuff that tears a program down. And, and so that, that took a little time. Uh, but we actually got pretty good in the second year that, that we were there and, and went on to have a, a great NAI run over 10 year period. Uh, and then, and then I had an interesting, uh, comment. I, I remember some of these, you can tell uh, some of these comments that were made to me and, and, and a guy that had played for me in the NAI days, one of the early guys that I inherited said to me one day that coach, you know, when you go division one. This is after we'd announced that we were going to go to Division One. You're going to have to you're going to have to start doing things differently. And I, I think I said to him, "Well, I'll just start digging ditches if that's the case." And and actually, actually, if we did anything, we 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 dove more into uh, that culture uh, and recruited uh, quality students, um, good people. Um, we we. Our evaluation process, Bailey, I think uh, was slower, uh, more methodical, mm-hmm. unafraid we might lose somebody because we didn't throw an offer on the wall when they were a sophomore in high school. Um, and uh, we wanted to make sure that this was the right guy for our team. And we wanted, maybe more importantly, and I'm, I mean this, sounds like a tactic, but that that they have the time to make the decisions that that's right for them. Uh, I told probably almost everybody I had a, a serious recruiting talk with and their parents that that decision for them is more important for that young man than it is for Belmont basketball. We'll, we'll find a way. I think he'd make us better, uh, but we'll, we'll find another player and we'll, we'll keep having a season and this is going to impact the rest of your life in, in a lot of ways. So, uh, so this goes to the whole, the whole gamut of uh, playing style, ability, attitude, uh, academic effort. They didn't have to be a Rhodes Scholar. They had to get into school legitimately at Belmont, which is a good school. Mm-hmm. And then they had to try. And that's, that, that's all that we required. Uh, and we ended, up, we ended up with by far the most division one academic all-americans uh in the last 15 or 20 years uh there and that's not any tutoring on my part <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's recruiting guys that are good students <laughs> you you weren't doing their homework for them i, I was not okay they didn't, they, and they never asked me for some reason okay <laughs> that's great well, i love what you just talked about you know also real quickly kind of dive into some you talked about kind of evaluating players but maybe talk about some of the qualities that stood out to you. And you talked about them from your parents too. A lot of, a lot of the qualities um, that I know that are important and obviously you, you possess as well, but what are those qualities that you look for outside of specific athletic ability that are kind of what people would probably call intangibles? Yeah. You know, that's an interesting question because that I would, when I spoke to our campers in the summer, at least the ones that were old enough to, to have an idea, I would ask the question, okay, I'd ask them how many of them want to play high school basketball and they'd raise their hands. And 
college basketball and most of them had raised their hands and all that. I said, well, well then, then tell me some things that you can do to give yourself a better chance uh, to, to make your high school junior varsity team and then make your varsity team and then be a starter and, and on and on and on. And it was all the things that, that we're kind of just talking about. It's, it's attitude, it's a team first attitude, uh, it's practice effort uh, every day. Look, you know, a guy might practice super hard one day, uh, but, but I'm gonna forget that two weeks down the road if, if he doesn't do it every day. And I could probably tell you right now the, some of the hardest work and practice guys we ever had because they did it every day, all the time. Uh, uh, being a good teammate, and there's a whole lot of ways we can talk about that, but mm -hmm. encouraging your teammate. Um, sportsmanship, I, you know, I don't know that every coach appreciates that enough to keep you on the basketball team or not, but I think it's super important. I think it's something we've left out of our vocabulary almost uh, recently. Uh, humility. Uh, you know, one of my favorite lines was, it's a football one, but, you know, when you, when you score a touchdown, act like you've been there before mm -hmm. instead of acting like you've just won the Super Bowl by yourself. Of course, I think it's pretty easy to say that the advent of ESPN and all kinds of, of television, they should, the highlights they show are also showing kids how they're supposed to act when they do something well. And so it's, it's pretty hard to overcome, but that was important to me in our, in our program that we never looked, uh, looked that way. I think it's, I think it was super important to, uh, no matter who you beat, where you beat them or who you lost to when that happened to, to get in that handshake line and, and, and look them in the eye and shake their hands and tell them congratulations or nice game, mm -hmm. whatever, whatever the case may be. I, I think coaches, um, in this day and age with all the money that's out there and all the, the, the chances to move up the ladder. Um, and look, we're all competitive. We, we would not have got in this business. I mean, if I didn't love competition uh, and I still do, you know, on the golf course or tennis court or, or a board game for that matter, if you, mm. don't, if you don't want to win or hate to lose, then you're probably not going to survive this. So it's not just about that. It's just that people forget, coaches forget sometimes that they are a super important part of their young, their, their student athletes' education. They're teaching them every day certain things about the way to act, what's okay and what's not okay. And the and, uh, longer I coached, the more I, I think I understood that, appreciated it, uh, tried to keep it in mind uh, as I coached. And it's it's one of the things that I almost always talk about these days when I'm asked to speak, particularly to coaches, uh, because I think we can all think of coaches that uh, that didn't that didn't do those kind of things. And uh, if if you know if you, if you cheat to get a player, or or and I'll, I'll go back way up. If you let the play, if you if you if you say we're going to run. Uh, a suicide and the winners doesn't have to run anymore the rest of the time. And then you let you, the kids cheat on touching the lines. Mm -hmm. You've taught them that's a good way to succeed. So when anybody missed a line in our practice, we ran the thing all over again, everybody. Mm -hmm. So 
that's little, but it's uh, but it's fair, and fairness is super important, in my opinion. So uh, I just think keeping in mind, it may be a small group of people. It may be the thirteen guys, fifteen guys on the team, the the managerial staff, couple of GAs, assistant coaches, manager. I mean, uh, you know, trainer, whatever. But you really are having an impact on their lives, and you better think about it. Absolutely. And I love the point that you talked about sportsmanship and just something I wanted to ask you about as, as you're talking about that was how important you feel like body language is being able to look somebody in the eye, shake their hand, uh, carrying yourself. You have to be confident, but, but not cocky or arrogant, but having like a confident humility about you. I feel like that's some of the best leaders have this confident humility about them and how important do you think body language is? <laughs> I think, I think that's I I don't know that I've heard that phrase confident yeah. humility but i think it's i think it's great it's not confident is not cocky mm-hmm. uh, and um and i think that's you know i think i think our teams had i think our teams looked confident mm-hmm. I've, I've talked to coaches and assistant coaches and former players that said things about our team uh that i didn't know they thought about our team uh that we were tough physically tough mentally tough things like that mm-hmm. so uh, I, I think it's real important. And let, let me let me give you another couple of I don't know if you call them rules or standards, but one was that when we when we went in and out of restaurants, uh, hotel lobbies, going to check in, uh, got off the bus, going into the arena, uh, all that kind of stuff, we we were not going to have stuff in our ears listening to music. Uh, we were going to be able to say yes, ma'am, no, sir, thank you. Uh, nice to see you. Appreciate what you did for us. Uh, and that's that to me is just decency, common decency, but, but it's not cool. You know, it's just, it's not cool. And I was a pretty uncool coach when it came to stuff like that and leave the locker room better than you found it when you walked in there. Um, and I'll tell you a quick story. I, and you know, it's hard to, it's hard to act like you, uh, uh, or I don't know, have humility, and then you go ahead and brag about something. So, I'm, but I'll, 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 I don't know. Maybe you can think of the two words to go together. <laughs> but we had um, we actually played Georgia in the NIT two straight years. Um, they beat us the first time we played them. We got lucky and beat them the second time around. The second time around, uh, we were uh, we were getting ready to get on the bus and go and drive back to Nashville. And my wife and I went in the locker room to change into travel gear kind of stuff, you know, after the game real quick. And, and the, the, you know, when you're at that level, they've always, they've already they've assigned a policeman to you or some kind of a secret service. <laughs> they think somebody's going to bother me. Uh, but so he was waiting outside. And, and as we started walking, he said, coach, I've done this for over 20 years down here. And that, that's the, that's the best behaved nicest team we've ever had in here. And I said, whew, would you, uh, would you go on the bus and tell those guys that? And, and he did. And so I just think that, um, that that's learning something hmm. that I'm talking about that we, for, we forget sometimes. Yeah. So, uh, things like that are, are kind of, I guess, what you're, what you're asking about, but just all the time. And no, you know, as, as I evaluate, talk, going back to evaluating players, do they, do they trash talk to the other team? Do they, are they 
talking to their teammates in, in not a good way. There's a difference between being a good leader and encouraging or maybe even pointing something out, let's get with it or something. But, you know, how do they handle – how do they how do they look at the coach when the coach takes them out of the game? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do they do on the bench while the game's going on? You know, I know Dean Smith had his team stand up every time somebody came off the floor. Uh, we, we know that. I'm sure Carolina still does it. We'll always do it probably. And I think that's a great idea. But I wanted our guys to do that because they wanted to. I want I wanted to feel that way about the teammates' effort. And I wanted to, uh, you know, I would watch our bench during video sometimes to to hope that they're all still into the game. Nowadays, that's become its own its own game. So everybody gets excited now over anything. But <laughs> used to, you had to worry about whether your bench was uh, fired up or not. Uh huh. Well, those are those are great points because it's the little things that add up. And obviously, you had great success as a coach, and you had great players and great coaches that came through and were part of the organization at Belmont. And I love kind of you talking about just how important those little things are, like being able to touch the line. Uh, Because if the guys go through practice and they don't touch the line on suicide, then it's like, okay, well, if I can shortcut that, maybe I can shortcut something else. And and that that creates or or kind of muds up the culture that you've established. Uh, And so when you have guys that say, hey, we're going to touch the line because this is the way we do things. uh, I, I just I love that example because it is so true. Um, it's the little things that make the big difference. And you talked about treating people fair. You've done a great job, obviously, of uh, you had a lot of great coaches that worked with you. And a lot of them have gone on to be coaches, both in the NBA and college. Um, and what were the things that you tried to do to help um, not just coaches that were assistants, but young people coming up in the management positions? I mean, I got to meet a couple, a lot, a lot of guys that uh, Corey Smith, Matt Mateau, yeah. Some of those guys that got yeah. a chance to be underneath you and speak absolutely tremendously highly of you. What are the things that you try to do to help them out uh, and become a better coach? Oh, I don't know that I can take any credit for, um, for that being my motivation, except to make them feel just as much a part of the team and the staff as anybody else was. Uh, I felt that way about our managerial guys or whatever they're called these days, whatever the right words are, but, but managers, you know, they're, they're a teammate. They're on, and, and our players treated them that way. That's what Matt was for, and Corey was. Both those guys were managers until they became student assistant coaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think they would tell you that they were, uh, they, they were treated and that we as a staff treated them just as well as we did our players. And that, that, that's another perfect example of signals that you send as a head coach. When you treat your players nicer and better and you allow them to you allow them to uh, boss the managers around because they can and they can get away with it and then that breaks all that stuff down that we're talking about it, but it's just not it's just not good human decency either you're you're not a better person because you're six nine and and uh, an all-american or or can jump out of the gym or or, or make three pointers like crazy you're not None of that makes you any better than, than the, and, and that was, that was said a lot on our team, but it, it, that kind of stuff is just what, what goes on daily. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't walk into practice very often with any kind of significant thing to teach or say, but it didn't take long for something to happen 
and that sort of thing comes up. We had guys, TJ told a story about a guy parking in a handicap spot, you know, you don't do that. You just don't do it. And, and, uh, and, you know, I was lit up about that. Uh, and, uh, and I'm sure everybody on that team remembers that, that whether they agree with me or don't agree with me, some of them probably do. And they probably understand it's the wrong thing to do. Didn't do it uh, again. <laughs> no, they don't, they, you know, you just, you just don't act. You're not special. Our guys were not special. And uh, with all that's going on these days in, in our world of college basketball, I'm not sure how players can't help but believe that they are nothing but special. And I, I'm not sure that's getting them ready for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great point that you made. And also just the fact that you have so many people um, admire you for the person that you are because you treat them fairly. You treat them with respect. You treat them like a normal person, right? You know, you didn't treat. Yeah. There was... I shouldn't really get any credit for that. But yeah. I appreciate it. But yeah. that's the way that people ought to be. Yeah. Well, that's I, I agree 100 percent. Um, real quickly before we wind down, there's one more thing I want to touch on because we talked about kind of the values and the culture you had established, you know, how you evaluated players. You obviously have great, great talent coming in and, and players that have a lot of talent, but also too, you talked about kind of putting together the type of program that you'd want and having those values. How important was it to not kind of let the pressure from the external forces, especially as you make the jump to division one, um, I'm sure that added a little bit more pressure maybe in terms of uh, having to try mm-hmm. to continue to win games and whatnot. I'm not sure, but how did you not let the pressure kind of seep into where you maybe compromised some of the things that you had created? Well, let me, let me back up and, and it, in an odd way, it almost, almost, almost felt less pressure. Mm-hmm. When we moved to division one. We, you know, we'd gotten to the point in the NAI where we were in two straight, national semifinals we were we won 30 plus games we were 37 and two the year that the current coach casey alexander was a senior point guard on our team uh we we could hardly do anything but back up <laughs> you know and uh, nobody ever wants to back up and uh, it certainly wasn't my decision for us to go to division one uh and, and that was made before we even had two or three of those really great teams um, it wasn't because we were great in basketball, although we were pretty good. It was, it was an institutional decision that Belmont deserves to live in the same neighborhood a lot of, as a lot of these other Division I programs around us. Samford, you know, Stetson, Mercer, Davidson, on and on. So, uh, so I, I went back to just trying to find a way to win games and didn't worry so much about our overall record. Uh, and so in that sense, those first few years, even though we lost more than we won, probably in the first four years of Division I, um, they, they were less pressure for me. It, 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 once we started winning conference championships and going to the NCAA tournament, then you get in that whole thing about, oh, I can't back up. We can't back up. We got to keep going to the tournament. We got to keep winning all these conference championships. And and so you put more pressure on yourself. I didn't, I never felt external. Belmont's a great place. Um, in, in a way, it, in a way it's great because we don't have a rabid following that lives and dies with the outcome. We got plenty of good, we got really good fans and we got some I'm sure that do that I don't know about, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't 
I wasn't sitting in John Calipari's seat. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, I, you know, I could live a pretty normal life and uh, and just try to, you know, do the do the best we can. Uh, but now I'm trying to back up to a uh, compromising is what you ask about. Yeah. Uh, I just never considered it, Bailey. I just didn't ever consider it. I, I don't, you know, it's, uh, I play golf and, uh, you know, if my ball's out of bounds, it's out of bounds. I'm not going to kick it back in. If it's in the, it's in a bad lie, it's in a bad lie. I'll take a few gimmies if somebody wants to give them to me, but I'm, you know, that's sort of a normal course of playing golf, <laughs> but, but I'm not, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm going to play golf by the rules or else my score is not really a score. And, um, I felt that way about competitive college basketball that that we need to play by the rules that the NCAA has set in recruiting and in the amount of time you can practice and all that all that kind of stuff and and certainly by the rules of the game and and uh, so it, it it was it never it never concerned me or never entered my mind uh, even even to the point of trying to recruit guys that I wouldn't, maybe what you're talking about a little bit, try to bring in guys that were really talented, but didn't fit uh, the Belmont player. The one, the things that had gotten us where we gotten us. Uh, they didn't, it, it just didn't. I've seen, I've seen programs get pretty good and then they move up a conference, which Belmont's really doing this year and, and try to change the, the way things got, the way that they were doing things to get them where they were. I just think you just, if you move up a conference, you can recruit better players and then you just keep doing things the same way you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know if that's a good answer, but it just, it's, it's, it's the answer because I didn't even consider doing anything that I thought made Belmont look. I worked for Belmont. It was, it was really up to me for Belmont's basketball program to enhance the university. I never forgot that, that basket, basketball was never more important than what was best for Belmont University. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I, I think your answer right there, you didn't even consider it, uh, speaks, you know, is the best answer because <laughs> it speaks volumes of, of the way you think and your character. So um, real quickly, I've got a fire round for you. So I'm just going to finish or I'm going to say a word or sentence and you can finish it however you feel in a word or yeah, sentence. I mean, can you fail this test? Is that possible? You, you cannot fail. There's, it is fail proof. You're going to get I, an A+. Plus. I, I probably can. Okay. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. You can do anything if. If you want it bad enough and you have the support behind you. Leadership is. Having a compass that uh, you show people every day that this is who you are and how we're going to do things. That's a real bad answer. That's a, that's a C minus. <laughs> it's pretty good. I think uh, favorite vacation spot. Whew. We've been lucky enough to go a lot of places, but uh, I think the the Pebble Beach area, Carmel, California, Monterey Peninsula, mm-hmm. hard to beat that place. Yeah. Intentionality is. Just simply being focused on uh, on what's in front of you and what you're supposed to be doing. Favorite golf course. <laughs> you know what? I'm just going to, there's, there's too many, but besides, besides the Oaks. So, <laughs> you know, the, I'm going to say, I'm going to say the University of South has a course in Swanee. That's a nine hole course. 
that Gil Hans redesigned about eight or nine years ago. And it's, it's a great golf course. It's not the best. I've been lucky to play Augusta and Cypress Point and you, you name it, uh, Pine Valley. Those are all fantastic. But I have a, we, we built a house down there and I play that course all the time and I love it. So I'm going to say Suwannee's nine-hole golf course. Awesome. It all comes down to. <laughs> I am going to fail this one. Uh, who you really are who you really are and how you represent that. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, we're done with the fire round. The final two questions I have for you. Is there a certain piece of best advice you've ever received? And what is it? Sam Newton was, uh, was the coach at, at a lot of at Alabama built great teams. Uh, went to Kentucky as an AD coached basketball Vanderbilt. When he was at Vanderbilt, he was at Vanderbilt when I took the Belmont job. Um, and, we were playing golf one day and uh, I was talking about some of our competition, how they did things and all this. And he just said, Rick, uh, there's a lot of different ways to paint a house. And um, I thought that was just a, just a great picture for me to not worry about whether I'm doing something exactly like somebody else is doing it. You got to be yourself. That's pretty good. I really like that answer a lot. Never heard that before, but I think it speaks volumes. Um, this podcast is called Building Excellence. What does building excellence mean to you? It it means that you just don't you don't sway from your goal, who you are, and what you do every day, and that people see that the people that you're leading see that and see that you're going to stick to it. That's a great answer. Well, Coach Bird, I, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing some of the things that you you did as a coach, not just to have a great career as a coach, but also to make a tremendous impact upon so many people uh, that you got to coach. And, and I'm sure not even just the players you you coach, but also just the people that were always constantly around you and the way you treat people. Um, I know I've, I've heard so many things, obviously TJ, there's so many people that, you know, there's a long list, but thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing kind of your your thoughts. You know, I appreciate you wanting me to be on, Bailey. Hey, everyone. It's Bailey Miles. Thanks again so much for tuning in. We hope you found value in the show. And if you enjoyed it, we would really appreciate you sharing the show with a friend, subscribing on Apple or Spotify podcast, writing a quick review, or leaving a five-star rating. When you do that, it really helps get the message out and allows more people to hear these stories and help them build excellence in their life, leadership, and legacy. If you have any questions, thoughts, or ideas, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me via email. It's bailey at baileymiles.com. Follow us on social. We're on all the different social platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Or check out our website at baileymiles.com. Once again, I'd love to hear from you, so definitely do that. And then thanks again for joining me on this journey. And remember, life begins at the end of your comfort zone.